Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined here with Deirdre Bosa. She is CNBC's tech check host. Hey, D. Hi, I'm coming to you from a San Francisco summer. We finally got the good weather. Wait, just so you know, and I saw this headline. It was on Bloomberg today that in Q2, demand for office space in San Francisco was up 10% in the quarter. And that I think the editorial comment was, is the bottom in for San Francisco real estate. Does it feel like there's a bit of activity going on over there that you've been just waiting for over the last few months, quarters? Dan, you must be a mind reader. I've been working on this piece for the last week with NBC Nightly News. So oh, you wow. will see it on Lester Holt tomorrow evening. But that is exactly what we look at. Specifically, the generative AI hype and the activity, it's all here. It's all in San Francisco. You might have heard that people moved out during the pandemic. They're all coming back. And that's, we visited a huge headquarters for Scale AI, a big generative AI company. But that is really what's providing hope. And there are signs of this revitalization. Oh, that's great. I, I actually did not know that was coming. So I think that's <laughs> interesting. And that's super cool that you're going to be on Lester Holt, the NBC Nightly News. Listen, you and I got a lot to talk about. We're going to be really quick here because I know this is like probably one of the busiest weeks of the year for you, D. But we have a great conversation. I want you all to stick around when D and I are done with my on the tape co-host, Danny Moses. And we are joined by Michael Dempsey. He is the managing partner at Compound. That is a VC firm. And we're going to talk about how they are thinking about investing in, in AI, machine learning, robotics, digital health, and believe it or not, crypto. And these are uh, areas that they've been involved with for a while. They're not Johnny come lately. And Michael is a brilliant guy. So we had a great conversation. So stick around for that. D, by the time that people are listening to this, okay, we have already had earnings from Alphabet and from Microsoft. This is a $2.6 trillion market cap company that the implied move in the options market is about 5% in either direction. And also Alphabet, a $1.5 trillion market cap company, also implied move about 5%. Those are some big moves for some big companies. Again, you guys are all going to know what they reported, what they guided to, and what the reaction is. And I had a great conversation with Gene Munster, who is of Deepwater Asset Management, where we looked at all of those earnings and then also Meta and Apple and Amazon, which report next week. So you can find that in the On the Tape feed. All right, Dee, let's get to it because you've been doing some really interesting reporting. I know that the day that the Lyft folks announced a new CEO, you had a conversation with them. I feel like it was a few months ago. And then on Tech Check this week, you had another one. What were some of the takeaways? Because again, this is interesting tying back to what you're seeing in San Francisco, maybe some signs in life of some hubs like that in, in and around AI. You cover Uber very closely too, but thoughts there? Because I know that in your reporting, you spent some time on just their singular focus on North American rideshare. Are we seeing some signs of life as it relates to Lyft and some of the things that we've seen as far as Uber and their core business? The last few years, we've seen Uber pull away from Lyft. They used to trade in tandem, as you well know, the major players in the ride-sharing space. But Lyft had just really fallen behind over the pandemic. So a few months ago, they replaced their co-founders with a new CEO, this guy, David Risher, who worked many years ago at Amazon and Microsoft, but he'd been in the nonprofit world. So I sat down with him 100 days in to look at the state of Lyft and ride sharing as a whole. And he has closed the gap a little bit. They've won a few points back of market share by competing more on price. But that is a dangerous game for ride sharing companies to do because those margins are already so thin. And these companies are still bleeding hundreds of millions, in some cases, billions of dollars. So he said, listen, we're competing on price. And I asked him, how far are you going to go? I think that's what Wall Street wants to know. Are we going to get to another price wars where these companies have been working on profitability, but do they suddenly turn that back to compete for market again? And he said, no, we're going to compete on other ways. And I thought the most interesting thing he said was, it's not terrible being number two. And he pointed to Pepsi. He said, it's a pretty good business. So we're okay. And I thought that was 
setting expectations quite low, but also really indicative of where the gig economy ride sharing has come. What a journey it's been. We've been covering these companies. You have been looking at them for so long too, Dan, when the competition was so fierce. And now it's just they need each other because they're duopoly and in some ways an oligopoly because they don't want to they set prices in a way, and you have the CEO of Lyft saying, we're not going to go too hard on them. We're going to get earnings from Lyft, I think, August 8th, and then Uber, I think maybe next week, August 1st. And this is a tale of two cities here, man. Look at the market cap on, on a Lyft. It's $4.4 billion. They do have a bit of cash. The stock's only up 5% on the year. It's had a big run off of its recent lows. This one on Uber, and, and this has snuck up on us a little bit. This in the last three months, this stock is up 60%, nearing a $100 billion market cap again. They guided to gap profitability this year marginally by maybe a couple pennies or so. Sales are still growing at high teens rates, and this is a company where margins are getting better. I think from the mid to high 30s, expected to be above 40% this year, maybe above 42% next year. Why have investors, do you think, just come around to this story? Because it's just taken off in the last few months. That's the Uber. You could maybe attribute the demise of Lyft and its shrinking market share to Uber's gain. And I think it's so interesting now that Uber doesn't want Lyft to go away by any means. They need them because as they approach $100 billion, remember that they have all of these regulatory battles as well. And you don't want to face those being accused of a monopoly, right? They need Lyft to show that there's actually two players that are still somewhat competitive in this market. The regulatory stuff always seems to creep up and surprise investors in a way. Even when you have a positive regulatory headline, the stock will sell off because it's just a reminder that this business is somewhat fragile. It rests on all of their drivers being part of the gig economy, independent contractors. Remember a few years ago when California was looking at changing that status and Uber and Lyft said, listen, we're just going to have to shut down completely because the business is not sustainable if we have to pay our drivers like employees. So there's always that. How good is it as a business? It's on some shaky ground, but I think that Uber, Darakazar Shahi, has certainly made strides in convincing investors that he knows what he's doing. He's going to diversify into food delivery and he's going to go towards a better measure of profitability. Another name that kind of uh, snuck up on me and had a disappointing quarter in guidance and, and the stock sold off, I think like 10% when it reported a couple months ago, two, three months ago, was Airbnb. And I know that's another name that, that you track pretty closely. Again, also up 35% in the last two months or so, nearing a $100 billion market cap. It just seems like the mood has changed. And these are two companies, Uber and Airbnb, use machine learning. This has been a big part of the, the engine that they've built over the last, call it 10 years or so, but you're not hearing talk. I'm sure Airbnb is going to be integrating a chat bot. It's funny. We haven't heard these names get into the AI hype, if you will. Again, you and I have been talking about this for months now. All of these companies, this is what they spend their R&D on. This is what they pile back when they weren't making money. This is the sort of investments they're meant to be making, but we haven't heard it yet. And I feel like we will start to hear this more and more from some of these companies because they're going to be asked the question how they're thinking about these technologies and how will they use them? For Uber, I think they want to be careful talking about artificial intelligence because on the streets here in San Francisco, you see fully autonomous cars driving around. You don't even need a driver. And this was something that Uber had bet on in the Travis Kalanick era, but gone away from in the Darakas Shahi Uber 2.0 era. So that could disrupt its entire model if all of a sudden you don't need a driver. I mean, we're still far from that, but that's really, when you talk about artificial intelligence, you're really talking about autonomous vehicles. And I think that Uber has got away from it. So what, they're going to slap a chatbot on something? I'm not sure that's going to cut it for investors. I'm trying to think of other ways. Yeah, to make the algorithm better, to make pickup times faster. Sure, that's around the edges and they've already been doing that. But can they partake in this generative AI cycle in a meaningful way? I'm not sure, but I think you're right. They'll probably be asked about it. And I think the one thing that as I talk to like investors, VCs and people in the tech space in general, I think one of the things that people remain really optimistic about is we don't even know the sorts of things that it's going to do and the, and the changes that it's going to make. And again, I'm not a technologist by any means. I definitely consider myself a bit of like early adopter. So I always find this stuff pretty fascinating, but I do seem to be, and I think you can probably tell this over the last few months, a bit cynical about some of these large 
platform companies just as far as at least what investors are allowing for them in the near term to accrue whatever value about some of the early positioning that they have, that to me, I'm probably thinking about fading a little bit and then thinking about how some of these other companies can get a lot of leverage out of these technologies. Once they're a bit more developed and we see better commercial applications for them, I guess that's the thing that kind of might excite me. All right, we got to talk about this other big story here. This is Elon Musk. He's finally just basically taking a flamethrower to anything Twitter by renaming it X. And this happened over the weekend. He tweeted this out or Z did it out or Z, I don't even know what they're calling it now. And I thought this was a really interesting take from Matt Levine over at Bloomberg. And he writes this great daily piece. And so I, he, he says, I guess my question is, what is he paying for? Musk didn't want Twitter for its employees. He fired most of them or its code, which he trashes regularly or its brand, which he has abandoned or its dedicated users whom he is working to drive away. He just wanted an entirely different Twitter-like service. Surely he could have built that for less than $44 billion. Mark Zuckerberg did. And I think it's really interesting. It's this story so well. You knew tons of people who've worked there, who've invested in the company, who've uh, been counterparties and in around it, who've been competing with them. You're out there in the middle of this thing. What is the answer for this? Because again, you always hear that build versus buy sort of thing. It sounds like he broke one of the like the most cardinal rules that exist in Silicon Valley. And he seems to be dismantling it brick by brick. He's almost like a god here in Silicon Valley. He created Tesla. He created SpaceX. There is this reluctancy to say that Elon Musk doesn't know what he's doing because people have said that and live to regret it in the past. But I have the same questions. I have no idea what he's doing. I know that he's trying to build a super app and he was early to that, right? He wanted to do that before a lot of the Asian companies actually did. He's envisioned X.com becoming this sort of everything app or website or whatever, everything platform for a long time. But the thing is that the internet has evolved very differently in the US than it has in China. And there's reasons that you can have a super app like WeChat, like Grab, like Kakao in Korea, in Asia and you can't have it here. And I don't know what his answer to that is and how he has critical mass. Did you see though, um, last night they were removing, or I think it was during the daytime, they were removing the Twitter signage, which is such an icon here in San Francisco, in downtown San Francisco. You pass and you're like, oh, that's the Twitter headquarters. Dismantling it didn't, I think didn't get the proper permit. So it was just ER that was left on the sign, which is Ironic. I thought your reporting, I saw you on Tech Check on CNBC yesterday, and you were talking about how just the difference between the development in some of these Asian countries and some of the services that you talked about, because they were built on a, on a mobile native sort of platform, and we're still stuck with some of these legacy financial app that, that weren't built for mobile, if you will. And so the integration of mobile and social and e-commerce and then payments it's just going to be a bit slower here. There's like massive incumbents and, and they're trying to basically like defend their moats for all intents and purposes. But the one thing I would say, we were on Fast Money last night, we were talking about this. And I got to tell you, this new CEO, Linda Yaccarino, and I'm not expecting you to comment on this. I know she was probably a former colleague of yours when she was at NBC Universal. The stuff that she tweets, and I think Casey Newton over at Platformer, which I love his newsletter, he basically called it just a word salad. It meant nothing. She's just out there. I feel so bad for this woman, to be honest with you. I hope she's getting getting paid an awful lot of money because he has just put her out there as a human shield, if you will, just to deflect all the garbage about what's going on. And I think at the end of the day, only he knows what's going on. But what's really interesting to me is when you think about the super app, and this goes back to, and I mentioned this to Gene Munster in my conversation with him on Monday, is that think about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook's early attempts at building hardware, building a mobile operating system, and they had to abandon it, right? Because the iPhone was just a juggernaut. And then if you were on Android, there were some applications that worked a bit better, definitely outside the US. But think about this. They have three and a half billion monthly active users across the Facebook platform. They have WhatsApp that's got over two billion. They got Messenger that has over one and a half billion. They have Instagram that's got over two. They have Reels that's got over one. Think about this, right? And now Threads, 100 million. And again, and Twitter has 330 million. And they've never been able to monetize that properly, right? So like to me, Facebook's not far away 
from putting it all together. And they, we know what they want to do with payments in the digital space. We know what they want to do with the metaverse. So if there's ever a company, and I'm not, listen, I'm not a Zuckerberg fan. I'm not a Facebook fan by any means. I think it's funny how Elon Musk has made Mark Zuckerberg look good in the, in the valley or all over the place, but they're really close to a super app. Then why didn't they just put threads as a button inside of Instagram? It's almost like they gave up before they even started. But Zuckerberg has been talking about trying to make a super app for a very long time. And you could argue that WhatsApp itself is maybe the closest thing to it. But again, it's just so far from the super app as it exists in Asia. And again, I don't know that you can put it all together because people like I don't use Facebook anymore. People don't want to open it up, but maybe it could just be a tab. And that's how WeChat works, right? There's no, the whole point of a super app, there's no reason to ever leave. And I do because I lived in China and used WeChat when it was becoming very popular. I always am amazed at how they want me to switch apps. But I think, oh, this was just so much easier. Wouldn't it be easier? Couldn't you just have all those billions of people that you just mentioned in one app and have your algorithm feed across, of, across it and better target? them for advertising or cross sell or whatever it is. Right. But it may be the closest, but it's still so far off. Listen, you know what? I think that they have basically 40 some percent of the of the planet's population and over 50 percent of those who are connected using their app. Yeah. You know what I it mean? Is, like quite, they are amazing quite, numbers. Yeah. And to me, and then we're going to get a sense from Apple next week. If you think about how most of the people, at least in North America and Europe, access a lot of their apps is through an iOS device. So you think iOS about, baby is the super app all of us aren't talking about. Yeah, exactly. There you go. All right, listen, we're going to keep watching this one as it unfolds, because I think there's very few people who have a really good sense of what his plan is. But if you think of the absolute destruction that's been created from a value standpoint, and you think about this, and I think I said it to you last week, I keep hearing people speculate that this thing is going to be in bankruptcy pretty soon, which is just amazing if he were to hang the banks on all that debt, 13 billion, and then all the equity people who came in on that, they, they rolled their equity at 54.20 into this deal. To me, it's very astounding for that sort of value destruction in such a short period of time where it wasn't really in the market's hands. It was in his hands. That's why he took it private. You know what I mean? Because you weren't going to be subject to market forces. And it seems like almost everything that he's done from his behavior on the platform, driving away advertisers, driving away users, it just seems really odd to me. One thing you could say about that is at least he's destroying the rich people's value, right? He took it private and he got all of these rich individuals and venture capitalists to invest at 54.20. He's not taking it down with the retail investors. That is a fact. All right, Deirdre Bosa, she is the host of CNBC's Tech Check. I really appreciate you joining me again. We'll see you next week. Stick around for my conversation with Michael Dempsey and Danny Moses. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy to use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. All right, welcome back to OK Computer. I am here with two very special guests, one that many OK Computer listeners might know. That is my friend, Danny Moses. He is the co-host of the On The Tape podcast that Guy Adami and I do. We've been doing it together, Danny, since January of 2021. This is your first appearance. On OK Computer. Everyone should be very nervous that I'm on oh, OK really? Computer. I'm dipping into an area where I really have very so, little. So last night you were our co-host on CNBC's Fast Money for the full hour, which was really fun with Guy and me. And now here we are on OK Computer, but we have actually somebody that we've wanted to have on for a long time. Michael Dempsey, he is a managing partner at Compound, a VC firm here in New York City. You're an investor in Compound. I am. Your good friend started that fund. David Hirsch. David Hirsch, yep. um, who I know, who's also a brilliant guy. Talk to us a little bit about why, Michael, welcome, first of all, to OK Thank Computer. You. Thanks for joining us here in our studios. And talk to us a little bit about your experience with Compound and why what we're going to be talking about with Michael today. I want to say five years ago, I invested in Compound One, I want to say roughly. I met Michael then. You think he's young now. You should have mentioned five years ago. And I was always blown away 
by how, not just how smart you were, but how cynical and seasoned you already were at that age. And when I met you, you were very involved in many areas, crypto being one of them, which I was very interested in learning more. And I think the way that you approached crypto was very smart. You were always skeptical, but smart on how to approach it. And I know that's in, in your fund to some degree in Compound One, you have some crypto investments, we can talk about it. But more importantly, to me, the thing that Compound does better than any other firm, if you want to call it VC, it's almost private equity at this point because they have so many companies that have matured beyond, is that you wanted to stay small. And your funds, if I'm not mistaken, were 50 million each, the three funds that were part of the Compound One, yeah. roughly. And that gives you the opportunity to have meaningful positions in smaller companies when they're starting up. So let's start with that right now. The process, how you guys think about investing and being able to spread out knowing that some of these investments aren't going to succeed. Also knowing, give yourself the firepower and the patience, which you guys have, by the way, to do follow-on offerings and to be patient and find the right areas. And now I think it's paying off for you guys in terms of having waited a little bit. So talk about how you got to Compound. We describe ourselves as a research-centric, thesis-driven investment firm. What that means to us is doing the thing that everyone experienced and venture tells you not to do, which is we build very prescriptive views of the worlds and like the futures we believe in. And then we find founders to partner with that fit into those theses or shatter them. And usually the thing that we are pretty good at is saying, what do the next 10 to 15 years of technological change look like? What are areas that have very high asymmetric upside? And what is like value accrual going to look like within those areas? And so for us, that usually falls within a few core categories of robotics, machine learning, healthcare and bio and crypto. And then there's probably 20% of adjacencies that look earlier on the commercialization curve, carry significant science risk. And those might look like specialized chips. Those might look like things like AR and VR. Those might look like quantum computing, stuff like that. But typically it's science or engineering risk early on. And then we get there early and learn and back a bunch of companies and partner with them in a fairly concentrated way, join the boards, work with them over the next decade and uh, exploit the learnings we have through cycles. And I think the thing that we are learning as the firm evolves is understanding how to study things when they're coming apart to continue to extract value. Crypto is a great example of that. Funny enough, AI would have been an example of that a few years ago if you had asked us, and now obviously is a new thing. In my background, um, I was always interested in investing. Started off my first job at a hedge fund doing long, short, and volatility trading around derivatives, as well as some cross-border private equity, and eventually let it carve out to do early stage investing. Fell in love with that and knew that's what I wanted to do, but should understand how startups work. So joined a company called CB Insights really early on, helped build out a lot of the data and research team. And in that time, really found these areas that were really like technical and unique and said, okay, here's areas that I think are hard to pattern match to and have built my career around investing in very technical early categories. I would say you guys are a very shareholder-friendly firm, meaning you guys have returned capital, You've taken the opportunity to monetize some of the stuff. You've also set up SPVs, so to speak, on one-off follow-on investments outside of it, which is a great thing that investors get to partake in. So let's dive into where we sit today. Greatest hits in the portfolio. Across a bunch of different areas, I would say like in the AI space, we have a few investments we made quite early. Runway ML here in New York is probably an example of that, of a company that has done really well. We backed them in 2017 as their first investor. Our view at the time was AI was going to be revolutionized creative industries. Everyone thought that would be the last thing AI was going to hit. Turns out it might actually be the first thing. And they have since grown to build a model called Gen 2, which is a video generation model. And you can think of them simplistically as open AI, but for video instead of text. And they build a bunch of amazing products around it. Wave is another whoa, example. Whoa, 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 hold on. Let's not skip over what just happened. <laughs> Someone just took an investment in this thing yes. in runway. All right. So that's out in the news. You can confirm. So who was it? And because I think people want to understand this area, what it means, what is the market cap? We are seeing crazy market caps start to happen, right? And 2 trillion, 3 trillion. Here you are actually witnessing an application that's actually already in motion and who invested in this thing. Yeah. Google in a, in a recent round. And a lot of that enables the company to continue to spend money on compute, scaling up resources, and also really continuing to push forward a bunch of different enterprise use Hold cases. On. I, I'm sorry. I got to stop you again. You, what was the valuation that Google invested at? That's public, isn't it? The valuation has been reported, but I can't confirm any valuation. I saw one and a half billion dollars. So, I'm I'm so sure. I just want to, I just want to take a step back there where you invested in it yep. roughly, which is probably, what was the valuation then? I'm just, uh, I'm trying to get to a point of not a mania where yeah. we sit, but just in general. So what, yes, it was under $10 million. Okay. Congratulations by that on the way. All right. Next one. And I know I want to get to the women's healthcare platform, which I know yep. is an incredible, which Melinda Gates is an investor in, yes. but I jump ahead, Dan. I'm sorry that I'm 
No. I've come on to OK Computer, and I have. The, the, okay. This is why we're doing it here, and it, it, and we we really actually want to expand away from the the, the runway thing too. But yeah. there's other. There, it seems like there's other verticals that you guys were early on, and yeah. they're starting to really come to fruition here. And I know that your life cycle is usually what five to ten years yeah. on some of these sorts of things. But to have an investment in something that where you invested, I, I'm assuming at pre-seed stage at ten million, and to have a company like. Alphabet confirm that thesis four or five. See, that's why I'm not later. an okay computer. No, it, it, I still call it Google. See, yeah. this is no, my problem. No, I call it Google. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, oh, yeah, we all do. It's truly. And, and then the other thing I definitely want to talk about in a second also is that look at what Nvidia. Look at how they're investing. Look yeah. at all these things. It, it, it's pretty fascinating that I wonder if smaller VCs are just getting crowded out mm. a little bit now because all these massive incumbents were actually benefiting in the public markets yeah. now by all this stuff. It, it behooves them to make these sorts of investments, sign them up to cloud contracts and using their tools. Give us a couple other examples in the portfolio of things that you saw a few years ago and now are being appreciated in the markets. I'd say Wave is probably the other big example. Wave is a self-driving car software platform. W-A-Y-V-E, right? Y-V-E. They're, they're building what I would call a foundation model for robotics, but the kind of easily understand thing is self-driving car software. And they started at a time in which post-GM acquisition of Cruise, post-Waymo scale-up, post Zooks, all these companies, everyone said self-driving's done. And our view was machine learning was going to play a much, or artificial intelligence now, was going to play a much larger role within self-driving. And you would actually need to build a model that truly understands how to drive versus teaching these hand-coded rules to not get too technical. Team out of London, we backed them. I met the founder when he was getting his PhD. I read his thesis. A few years later, he started a company. We led their seed round, been on the board ever since. Um, and, and that company has trials going in London, has cars on the road there. And our view is they have the one of the best, if not the best shots of building scalable autonomy. So being able to go city to city quite quickly instead of spending months gathering data, spending tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. And they take a similar approach to Tesla in the sense that they, they don't believe in LiDAR. They believe the same thing that we believe, which is humans can drive with two cameras, our eyes, and they believe they can get a car to drive itself with two cameras. So how would you compare their technology to Tesla, because as far as being ready, whatever level autonomy yeah. we're talking about here. Tesla is very performant on highways, as we all know. It's a great lane follow and things like that. Wave is very centered on urban driving. So their cars drive around London, which is one of the most chaotic environments ever. And from an urban driving perspective, I think Wave has one of, if not the best technology in the world. Is it commercially applicable at this point? Are they still like, where are we in the stages? They're in commercial trials now on grocery delivery. Because if it was Musk, he'd already have it out on the road, right? <laughs> Very different products, but yeah. Why, I think why, why are they so different? You said because one's built for urban. City, but, but Tesla owners don't know that. They're probably driving in cities. In I think some of them are, yeah. I think there's varying degrees of comfort that people have in putting things in the world. And to be like democratic about it, I think that each of these founders have different decisions they make on risk. And I think we're seeing that across everything in AI. We see it with Zuckerberg putting out Llama as an open source model and giving it to everyone, where a few years ago, OpenAI was worried GPT-2 might be AGI and threaten the world. So is there a level for this also? Is it considered, is there a standard level for the The, the, the goal is to build true L5 self-driving, but I think we'll see these things progress in a gradient more than we'll see one day you flip a switch. And, and is, it's, is Bill Gates an investor or is Microsoft an investor? M Microsoft is an investor. Okay. I, I think what Danny's also trying to get at is Elon Musk has been talking about L4, L5. You know yeah. what I mean? Like we should be there right now. Yeah. If you were listening to what he was saying five or seven years ago. Yeah. And so I wonder, it's interesting, how many standards do you think there will be? And I think what just happened with the charging network, it yeah. could be a little bit of a precursor to what we see but it, it has totally like other massive implications, regulatory and like all that sort of stuff. So it's interesting because the EU is going to treat this very differently yeah, than we right. are here, right? And so there might develop more standards than we would probably want as a technologist. So talk to us a little bit about that because yeah. I think that it seems like your guys are a bit more sober about when they're going to get to L4 or L5. Yeah. So just give us a, a sense for that, because that's something that a lot of the Tesla bulls, and I don't know if you know this, but we're Tesla bearers on yeah. this podcast. Uh, uh, I know. <laughs> a lot of the Tesla bulls, we would tell you that there's hundreds of billions of dollars um, embedded into the current market capitalization yeah. the value of Tesla based on all of these promise of autonomous driving. I believe in two things at once, which is one, I think technology moves faster than governments can kind of shoehorn it or control it. And so in some ways, these things that are inevitable, especially when it's like driving, where it's one of the largest killers in the entire world, will move at a pace that forces the hand of governments and will likely be deployed in ways that uh, 
there will need to be sign-off. The burden of data will go down over time as people can feel the experience of being in a car that truly can reason its way through urban environments. That said, there is meaningful amounts of data that needs to be gathered when you go into a new city, new environment, whatever. And I think that all of the work that all these companies are doing from a lobbying perspective and a regulatory perspective, I think will work fine on any time horizon for full L4, L5 autonomy. Like it is not something I worry about literally at all. And I think a lot of people look at the shift of like how scary it could be to have self-driving cars on the road. And I think it's once you realize just how terrible human performance is as driving, and this is something we see in basically every industry we look at with AI versus healthcare, AI versus driving, AI versus whatever, humans are generally bad at most things relative to AI. I think it's going to just get past. So Wave is a software developer, right? They don't make cars. So could Wave's product be on any type of car? Could it be put? Yeah, a lot of the thesis of why we love what they do is if you look at the CapEx for a Waymo car, they have hundreds of thousands of dollars of sensors. And Wave is uh, a a camera array and then, you know, one or two cheaper sensors depending on how they continue to progress with that. And so the bomb cost is like many orders of magnitude cheaper. And the thinking is there will be in this space, similar to how Mobileye kind of held everyone captive for a while and then eventually Tesla migrated away, there will be other companies that develop autonomy that get with OEMs or with other types of service providers. Is the idea for that technology that it shouldn't matter if it's a Civic at a $27,000 price point or a Mercedes S-Class at an 85,000, like that autonomy tech, that, that, autonomous technology will be the same in both cars or? I think generally, yes. There will be stages of this because of like compute required or sensor and like how you generally think about building from an OEM perspective, a car with a certain amount of margin. Obviously that cost will come down, but the eventual future is I cannot imagine a world in which because you pay more, you get a better autonomous driver. I think there will be other adjacent things, perhaps around driver behavior or perhaps around the same things we compete now for interiors of cars that are built around autonomy, though. But I don't think that it'll be like you have a more you pay more for a better driver. I just I think that won't fly. All right. So let's shift gears to healthcare. Kia, which with a really cool thing about Compound is that they have an annual meeting. And they do it in New York City and all their companies or portfolio companies come in and you can sit in the audience and it's Q&A, but it's very intimate, like I said, because it's not a huge fund. It doesn't have hundreds of investors. It's got a group. And a lot of your investors are strategic in nature, too. They may bring you ideas and so, which I think is always great to have both ways. But this was one of the presentations that I think was most exciting in the last few years was Tia. What's the state there? And I know that Melinda Gates is an investor in that one. Yeah. So Tia, I think one of the things that we do when we're building a thesis is we say, okay, what on the science side that it's like emerging is interesting and what does that tell us about eventual futures we should believe in? And maybe seven or eight years ago, it just became more and more clear that a few things were happening. One, obviously healthcare in the U.S. is broken, specifically women's healthcare in the U.S. is incredibly broken. And more and more science is coming out around how you even treat women's healthcare. I wrote a post about this years ago and I ended up getting connected to Carolyn Witt, who's the CEO, and Felicity Yost, who's the other co-founder. And they are where thinking about building kind of a new platform to enable millennial women to find new types of healthcare. And what they quickly realized early on, and Carolyn's background, she was at Google and helped build a bunch of the kind of early marketing around a rebrand and a new launch for the search engine a few years ago. And one of the things that they kind of realized early on in the company was that you can't actually impact care without giving care. And I think that's something that a lot of digital health companies saw. You don't impact like outcomes. And so they have now built a full kind of healthcare clinic with a very science-driven, what they call cycle-connected care model. And it's in this bigger trend of how do you think about holistic care, but it's targeting a just grossly underserved customer in women, especially women in the United States, where you often don't build a relationship with your doctor until you go to have a child or something. And so there are a lot of kind of like doctor-orphaned women in in this country. They raised $100 million and now have multiple clinics throughout the country, partnerships with large hospital systems. And our hope is they will become an effective one medical for women because we don't think that it's a one-size-fits-all care model for that class of women. What do you think are some of the common themes as I think about these are obviously very disruptive companies that you're talking about, big incumbents, right? That are at like the precipice of huge technological shifts. And Tia, is this something that you see the way in some of these other investments that you've described, technology playing a huge role in this, or yeah. is it filling a gap in, in something that like yeah. that you think that has to happen and then technology is really the next phase of that? I think in Tia's case, technology is the thing that enables it to be a venture business and not like a private equity business. Right. It enables better margin, better scale, and that creates better outcomes because you have better care as a, as a customer. And there's also a digital health component, telehealth component. The main theme, which is why we 
always get so deep on research-centric, thesis-driven, is if you look at what is happening in the earliest stages of any industry, and that typically happens in academia or research groups within large organizations, you can just see enough nuggets that sit out there that will tell you what is going to happen over the next few decades. And the example that now is helpful for anyone is, and we wrote about this in our annual letter, is like GPT-3 sat out in the open for two years before ChatGPT. And like that paper was there. Everyone saw it. You could hit the API if you wanted to. And it just took someone looking at it and candidly a very small team at OpenAI being like, we need to build a product around this thing to show everyone what it could do. And I think as more and more capital has come into innovation at like by large, the gap between academia and research and commercialization and what we call like science projects versus mass market venture scale businesses is just collapsing in time faster and faster. And I think the most important thing is that the people in a lot of these areas are now seeing that they can be founders. It's not like this dark art. They're seeing their friends do it. And that makes them be like, well, if this person can do it, I can do it. And so you see more talent migrating through these areas, which just enables people who want to do the work of really spending time reading a lot of stuff and meeting with people who maybe aren't ever going to start companies but have really bright ideas and research. I think it just will be able to tell you a lot about how the future unfolds. That's a good shift to crypto. Because we talk about something that's been out there. When I tell people, some of the smartest people in the world I know believe in blockchain and crypto, so therefore, I'm just going to put my brain in, in the closet and let yeah. them go do it. And you were early enough, and you're one of the people that I actually refer to. We don't really call it Bitcoin anymore. We don't call it crypto. How do I think about the commercialization of that where we are when you think about yeah. You just mentioned we had open code on ChatGPT was sitting there. Blockchain's been sitting there. Crypto's been sitting yeah. there, and there's applications being built. Help me understand where we are in that process and what you guys are doing. When we started investing in it, it was 2016. And one of the things that we saw were a really interesting group of developers building largely around Ethereum. And we said, this is interesting. This is a future that feels pretty far off, but it feels very asymmetric. And so we should allocate some amount of time and resources to understanding that. We'll make a variety of investments, largely across infrastructure, some application layer things, and we'll see how this plays out. And to be honest, in 2016, I was interested in crypto. I was not a maxi who's, this is it, Bitcoin is real money, everything else sucks, whatever. I thought it was really compelling from a technological perspective. I think each year that goes by, regardless of price going up, obviously helps, but each year that goes by, more and more things continue to happen around the world that create like really massive volatility inducing events. And that make me more and more bullish on a very core concept, which is will the next generation of people be more focused on privacy, on trustless environments, on self-sovereignty? And will coordination amongst these groups of people be more decentralized in a sense of like remote work is like decentralized work, right? Not in a blockchain sense, but just more spread out. And will you want more efficient systems to deal with all of these changes? And will eventually a lot of these changes that have been unwilling to be more efficient from technology be rewritten because the decision makers that enter into those institutions say, you know, expand margin using things like smart contracts or whatever it is. But isn't that kind of the knock on it too, is that like these decentralized, let's call it, let's just use as an example, like a, a social network, were not more efficient. And if they were more efficient, they would have had more uptake in the last few years at a time where people, millions of people were obsessed with PFPs and NFTs mm -hmm. and buying shit coins and all that sort of thing. And then, but the experience was not great. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that I find really fascinating because I've been really curious in and around this space, but also fairly skeptical. And I think Danny, in, in the same way, we started our podcast, our first one in January 7th of 2021. Yeah. It was like right before all of the people stuff, all the doge and all the celebrity promoters. And it looked to us like an all out mania. And then on the other side, in the regulated stock market, you had meme stocks, the yeah. GameStop and everything like that. And everybody was obsessed with all this crap. And yeah. it was all like merging into one. And then Clubhouse started, then people were doing clubhouses and spaces all day and night. And then it all went away. I don't know too many normies like us who are engaging with anything blockchain based right now. And I think if we were to look at like, I, I don't love this analogy, but the one that some people like to use is like the internet was invented in 1989. By 1995, it had 15 million users. It's like a pretty long time relative to you know where Ethereum is today. I think that in, in general, I'm more so just looking at this idea that like the core concepts underlying crypto and specifically areas like decentralized finance, decentralized compute, more efficient markets that actually create value. Like gambling is an incredibly valuable asset. I think that a lot of the stock market has shown that is also what that has been for a while. But I, I think that the principles underlying it will eventually continue to rise, especially as demographic shifts happen, as well as like 
the world isn't as American centric. And so I think that will matter quite a bit. Can you give us an example of something in your portfolio that is working that application? I'm sure several are, but yeah. just give us an example of kind of your favorite. We have, funny enough, a decentralized finance protocol in our portfolio that we seeded is called Compound. And it's a pure, simplistic lending market. And so the idea is, if right now it's over collateralized because doing trustless things and under collateralized is very difficult, as we've all learned. I think the main thing that they're facilitating is if you have a lot of wealth, whether it's through Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever, and you want to get a loan against it, the way in which you would do it today takes a ton of time, a ton of people, all these things. There's a particular man in Washington blocking that, but yeah. You get, yeah. And, and, yeah. and <laughs> instead, all you could do is you can put up your ETH and you can take out at a collateralization ratio of 150%, the requisite US dollars, whatever it is. And so I think those types of things, which today sit in a decentralized way in which you are, there are lenders, there are suppliers, and there are borrowers, will continue to be more interesting as one, like people understand that institutions are quite fragile and they maybe lose because of institutions. But I think even too, like the most crazy part of that you could get to is like the inevitable idea that like every country wants to control its own financial infrastructure. Like in the US, everyone cares about the dollar. Everyone in the world cares about the dollar. In many countries, like why do I want to control my monetary policy and my financial infrastructure outside of ability to maybe control my citizens? But if I have a military, I can do that anyways. I think more and more of those things will work. So Compound has hundreds of millions of dollars locked in it today. At its peak, it has many billions of dollars. And that is something that is trustless, is instant. You can get a loan off of your capital in $10 of ETH gas fees and 10 seconds if you really want to. Perfect segue into Silvergate or into the <laughs> banks, right? Because Silvergate tried to do some stuff, yeah. not like that exactly, but yeah. obviously lending using crypto as some type of collateral. You're in the VC world. Yeah. You were, I think I was with you guys. I was with David for sure the yeah. day the news was breaking on Silicon Valley, yeah. watching in real time your group, not just your group, the group VCs. And we know a lot of people in the space, harrowing moment realization because this last thing you guys think about, you're out there trying to find great ideas and startups and they're fun with cash and all of a sudden they're, forget about your cash, yeah. their cash. Talk about that moment. And if you can, you guys weren't really directly impacted. I mean, you had whatever, you know, talk about it, but it all ended up fine. But your portfolio companies, the panic, like, where are we in that? That was like the longest four days of my <laughs> life. And it was so funny because that Sunday when at the end of the day, they said they were going to rescue the bank. That was a day of five different emergency board meetings. And then at the end, this was all pointless. I think like that to the point, like that is the other thing that SEB was a unique example because there were so many people on the public side that looked at that book for months and was like, this is clearly something is wrong here. But the transparency around that is still quite difficult and so not real time. And like these institutions don't fail in a decentralized public blockchain way. Like it, you can see it, code instantly liquidates people, it goes. And we saw that with FTX. We've seen it with everything that has happened. All Black Swan events, DeFi protocols have kept going. On the SBB side and these other banks, I think a lot of it was just a, a like realization for a lot of people, myself included, just how fragile so many of these things are. And all the founders were partially in this idea of, I can't believe I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with a contraction of multiples, dealing with the growth markets going away. And now I have to like care about, am I putting my money in the right treasuries? What is the bank account? What's my FDIC coverage? And it's just something the founders aren't used to, especially our types of founders, which are like highly technical people. But I think these types of moments are like, that was maybe one of the best outcomes because it taught a lot of people a lesson and no one theoretically got hurt yet, maybe. So that happened at the same time rates were already, obviously rates going up is what caused it. Sure. But at the same time, that type of liquidity was becoming scarce in, in that world anyway. It yeah. just exacerbated it. Yeah. So shift now to where we are as far as companies that are getting funded and companies that aren't getting funded or companies that didn't prepare for a rainy day and yeah. are now either forced to sell, shut down, or, or just take a much lower valuation, kind of feast or famine. Yeah, I think it's, I would think of it as there are AI companies because everyone loves AI right now. Oh, we're well aware. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. those get funding and we can talk about that. And there's non-AI companies. And I think the biggest lesson over the past four years, because it's funny, we've gotten to see the crypto cycle and the AI cycle back to back. What about the metaverse cycle? Remember that? Yeah, luckily we didn't have short. to deal with that. that. Was yeah. was Founders often look around and because now these financings are so popular and so covered in the media, you have founders at every moment wondering what's wrong with them because something else is happening. And so now I think you have a lot of founders who are not building an AI, who've just been heads down, and they're wondering like, why does nobody care about what I'm doing even though I'm trying? So the growth market for those types of founders is still pretty dead. And eventually it'll come back, but I think there's a lot of people who are terrified to deploy real capital right now. And even with the NASDAQ ripping like it has this year, they're still terrified because they know the next thing that's happening, which is, a bunch of companies raised in 2020, 21, 22, 
There's a ton of money. They hopefully responsibly cut, but they're still so far out ahead that they're not going to be able to raise because the restructuring of the cap table would be so bad. No one wants to deal with it. And they're probably going to go out of business in the next six to 18 months. And it could take longer, it could take slower, whatever those things are. I generally am of the belief that this is like healthy. Investing is supposed to be hard. I think everyone, especially in my cohort of younger fund managers and investors, didn't realize that. And they thought it was easy and they thought it was all about deploying capital. Let's talk about that deploying capital within the AI space right now in it. And we hear this again and again, you're, you're seeing a lot of companies pivot and, and yep. thinking about whatever they had whiteboarded, how they're going to use machine learning and AI, you know, like, like down the road they're doing right now and they're changing their decks. To me, what's interesting is that we've seen this a couple of times now, to your point, over the last few years, we saw people rushing to develop web three strategies, right? Yep. Rushing to develop AR, VR metaverse strategies. And you know, what the fascinating thing as a public markets person who's adjacent to the privates is that from the moment that Mark Zuckerberg changed the name of his company in late 2021 and, and really reoriented the company, the stock went and dropped 75% yeah. over the next year. And then we saw what happened in crypto. It was a $2 trillion market cap as a whole, yep. right? And went down probably 80 some percent from its highs. When I look at what's going on with AI here, all right, let's just talk about this week. Yesterday or one day this week, Microsoft announced the pricing for Copilot, which is AI tools that they're going to sell to enterprise in a seat-based fashion. And they announced it's going to be $30 a seat. And Amy Hood, the CFO of the company, was quoted maybe a week or so ago that these could be $10 billion in revenues. This is a company that's expected to do $210 billion in revenue this year. Now, we know how enterprises buy, okay? Yeah. So right now, they might scurry around and they might do this because they want their people using these sorts of things or that or whatever. It might cannibalize some other things that they're already buying from you. But the stock rallied on that headline, $130 billion in market yeah. cap. It went up. This is the second largest company on the S&P and the NASDAQ. And it rallied. So, so think about that. Let's just say we take that $10 billion number and let's say it was just meant for these sorts of tools. It's trading at 13 times sales before they've even sold the tools yeah. and the licenses. Okay. So then the next day, there's a headline that comes out that Apple, $3 trillion market cap company, is rushing to develop a open AI type tools to compete with, obviously, Microsoft and Google. And that stock rallies 2%, 2% on $3 trillion. So there's a mania going on here. Yeah. Okay. So help us make some sense of this because Danny and I think we have a good sense for it. Th there's a <laughs> chance that this could go the way of those last two manias that we saw. I don't mean that Microsoft and Apple and Google are going to lose 75% of their value, but if they've just gained a half a trillion based on this, I don't know, man, it seems like it could get a little dicey in the not so distant future. Yeah. I think one of the things that is most interesting about like public market investing right now is that everyone centered around the idea of like hyperscalers and compounding. And so like you talk to any of like the tiger cub managers, any of these people, their belief in how they invest is like you find something and you let it compound. And so if you believe AI is a winner take most market, and if you believe this is the first technology that incumbents have, as some people say, like first right of refusal to, you just might assume that just compounds in a way that is a scale that you didn't appreciate before. And I think that's what happened in private markets like in 2020, which was people saw businesses that became 30, 50, $100 billion companies, like Snowflake is an example of that. And they assumed that meant that they, they were so surprised by the upside of that. They said, so many of these businesses are going to surprise so much larger to the upside, com compounded at a rate that we just can't appreciate. Like Zoom. Zoom, data, I, dot, all no, these I know, things. But like, and I say Zoom, right, I'm being sarcastic yeah. in a way. But can like, I just add to that? Before? Yeah. Because I think it's important. So obviously the favorite name in the space, NVIDIA, yep. certainly had a coming out party on AI, right? Yeah. And it's been nonstop ever since. If you're that portfolio manager of the public markets and you had that theme, right? You're right. Where's the discipline? You get caught up. I think what Dan's talking about is the incrementalism of this AI yeah. craze and trade. It's going into various pockets. We're talking in the trillions of dollars now that's been added. And eventually it'll catch up. Could, at this rate, it could be 20 years before you can catch up to yeah. validate. Again, not my area. I don't know. But the problem with that is that, and this is when we shifted over to the public markets. Yeah. This is on, on the tape podcast would be 
How do you tell people, oh, it's down 10%, this is where you buy it, or it's down 20%, because there wasn't a fundamental reason. There was a thesis-driven reason, and there is fun. So I think what Dan's getting at, and you're sitting in a position where you have private companies, you're not marked to market each day, you're not missing out because you already... So you have an objective point of view, which is what I think Dan is trying to get at. And I'm not telling you that you should be shorting NVIDIA, but that I think is what Dan is saying. It's like the people that are just buying it because it's a theme versus what does it actually mean to the numbers? How big is this thing? I think what we've seen is if you have built-in distribution, it can be a meaningful revenue generator. Like the notion kind of story now is like they add AI revenue, they hit the revenue number that they expected in a week for the, the year. But the great example is what you just gave of COVID in 2020. For sure. Is the, the pull forward. And the problem right now is that these massive market caps are discounting that future, you yeah. know what I mean, growth. And at yeah. some point you're going to have the deceleration that we started to see in 2021. And that's when it was lights out. And some of these companies in the public markets haven't, Zoom, which I mentioned, have not been able to get out of their own way. And they're that's profitable. Right. And they're actually probably... We're operating as a better company now than they were two years ago. And so part of the point is that investors, they have very short memories. It, it feels euphoric right now, but it could change. And the last point I'll make, and I want to hear you dissect our idiocy here, is that NVIDIA has also been a part of every one of these crazes. Yeah. Crypto mining, metaverse, gaming, like every single one. And maybe Jensen Wang, it doesn't get the, the clout that Elon has as far as being a salesman. But they're there, and I know people are double, triple ordering these things right now, but at some point, this is going to moderate quite substantially. And if you just think in the last two or three months, this company has gained $400 billion in market cap based on a beat of $4 billion in a quarter of graphic chips. I longed NVIDIA last year. I sold a couple of weeks ago. I think that like, in some ways, you guys are getting at the main thing, which is like narratives are driving these markets more than anything. There is now what is effectively an infinite bid into these markets because people deploy into their BTIs, the S&P, ETF, whatever. Mm -hmm. And there is now, this is all happening in a terrible macro environment for equities. A more simplistic view could be like, this is great. We're now like looking through rate lowering. If that happens, I have another 30, 40, 70, 100% to run on all of these hyperscaling things from it's just pure narrative capture perspective on a market cap. I think this is all... To say, I just don't believe a lot of these investments are fundamentally driven. And I think a lot of it is as thesis-driven as we are of let's look at things and extrapolate them. And if we're on the margins off, but we look at 10-year time horizons, I think weirdly a lot of equity investors today have that same lens because they've only been long only. They've been largely tech and they've been in the same 80% portfolio overlap across all of the different funds. And they get annihilated at the same time, depending on how well they sell, like Co2 sold very well. Others sold horribly, and then they all long right back again. So I don't think that there's a narrative. I don't think there's anything you can fundamentally say outside of like something will happen that will create significantly larger value than anyone appreciates. And people believe in asymmetric upside now. And a likely the lens at which they're looking at these equities is in a similar lens that we look at our portfolio, which is we need to have two good ideas out of 30 and our investors make money. And theirs is probably we need to have one good idea out of five. Danny and I are still searching for one good long idea in 2023 <laughs> in the stock market. Michael Dempsey, this was fascinating because Danny and I were, were dummies when it comes to some of this sort of stuff. So it was really interesting to hear about some of the things in your portfolio, your process, and obviously shedding a little light um, on the public markets because you did come from the public markets. And so valuation and innovative tech, these are things that are very much part of your DNA. So it's really helpful to hear it from your perspective. So we really appreciate you joining us on the pod here. Thanks yeah. a lot. Thanks so much. Michael, yes. thanks for coming on. It allowed me to come on this. <laughs> well, listen, next time he comes back, maybe we'll invite you back too, Danny. So I appreciate thanks, for, it. thanks for being here. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.